Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Boys, girls, everybody, I need to let you know in advance that this week's show is going to be absolutely fucktacular and all the all the best and worst ways. I have so many things that I want to talk about. Last week, I did an amazing interview with Kenya Robinson. She had amazing insight. But it also means that we skipped a week of talking about respectable things, right? But also about fuckery and foolishness. So I have to make up for lost time. And there's so much going on, starting with the obvious, which is the never-ending Jesse Smollett catastrophe. From the very beginning, there were people who were skeptical about his story. But with more information coming out over the last few days... It's seeming more and more and more like old boy just pulled a hate crime hoax. I have many thoughts, many, many thoughts about that. I want to talk about this amazing documentary on Showtime about Teddy Pendergrass. I had insomnia. So I was scrolling through Facebook late one night and I saw a mention of it and I was like, oh, and so the next day, like I just I gave it a, a watch and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then I went and watched it with my mother, who I was like, I'm about to leave you in this kitchen by yourself because some of your commentary is inappropriate in the presence of children and about a man who is not your husband, who is also my father. Like this is you're doing the most right now, lady. So even though Showtime did not engage me to promote it, I think that it's really dope and it's worth talking about, and it's worth watching to see the full glory, my God, of Teddy P. And then you should go tell your mama about it. You know your mother better than I do to know if it's appropriate to watch with her. If you have a turned up mother, understand she's going to be turned up watching this documentary, and she's going to express herself. I do not have a turned up mother, and she was doing the most. So I'm warning you in advance. We have to talk about Kamala Harris, because we're going to talk about Kamala Harris every episode. As long as she's in this race, we're going to have commentary about her. The way people react to her, it's just, it's amazing fodder for, for a conversation. She just, all the world's issues are projected upon this one woman. It's so weird. She's been doing press rounds in black spaces. She just went on The Breakfast Club. And she's being accused of pandering to black people, which I don't understand. Because I'm like, if you're black and you're speaking about your black experiences, how is that pandering? So to give me insight on this, I reached out to someone who is far more intelligent than I am. Her name is Christina Duyon. She is a diversity fellow and doctoral student in the counseling psychology program at Boston College. I also want to talk about Gucci and fuckboy Floyd Mayweather insisting on shopping there on camera while people are calling for a boycott. I'm like, why? Why? Why are you such a fuckboy? He's just like committed to it. Like it's a lifestyle to him. And last but not least, I want to talk about Monique and Steve Harvey. They had a contentious sit down that took place on Steve's talk show. It was like they forgot the cameras were there. They've been really good friends for a really long time. And they got into one of those philosophical arguments that you have with friends that you really love, you really respect, but you just don't really approve of of their point of view on certain things. Steve, I think, not even I think, Steve spoke too freely. He since walked back some of his comments after being bashed online about them. I have thoughts on that. So those are the topics for this week. And yeah, let's go. Jesse Smollett. 
I'm out of words for this. I swear. I went on MSNBC this weekend because they've they've called in the cavalry. Everyone I know who's a talking head was on TV talking about Jesse Smollett this weekend. CNN reported over the weekend that two law enforcement sources with knowledge of the investigation told Chicago police they believe that Smollett paid two men to orchestrate an assault on him that he reported January 29th. The two men that were brought in for questioning by Chicago police were not the white men that Jesse said that that attacked him. They were two Nigerian brothers, one at least who has appeared on an episode of Empire. They were arrested on Wednesday. They were released without charges on Friday after the police said they found new evidence. Sources say that at least one of the brothers bought the rope used in the incident at Smollett's request. They also say the Empire actor paid for the rope, which was purchased. They named the hardware store, Crafty Beaver Hardware Store. And it was purchased like four days before the attack. They said the plain red hats that they wore, the MAGA hats, I guess, they were bought at some uptown beauty supply store. It's a lot of detail. Same CBS affiliate cites a source that says the brothers were paid $3,500 for the attack before they left for Nigeria the day of the attack. So they attacked Jesse, like, I don't know, two, three o'clock in the morning, and they left for Nigeria later that day. According to the brothers, Smollett said that he would pay them $500 upon their return. The brothers are saying that, that he planned and paid for the attack. That's, that's crazy. Officially, the Chicago police spokesperson has said, we can confirm that the information received from the individuals questioned by police earlier in the Empire case has in fact shifted the trajectory of the investigation. So the officially on record, police are not saying that Jesse's lying. They're saying that they're following up. There's been talk of a grand jury investigation. It's not looking good for bruh right now. Is he still bruh? Look, I talked about this in a previous episode when it first happened. And I said I felt terrible for him. My immediate reaction was to believe him and and to publicly sympathize. I went and dug up a picture from a time that I met him and, and you know I, I expressed, you know, public heartfelt um sympathy, my prayers for for him, his friends, his family. I'm okay with admitting that I was wrong. I would rather be wrong about expressing too much compassion or too much sympathy than to withhold it from a victim who needs support. Like, I just, I'm okay with that. I think the way it's been, this story has been politicized is really awful. A lot of people came out with very hard language against, you know, Trump and his supporters. And they're having to walk a lot of that back in light of, you know, the seeming developments that this man lied about being attacked or he orchestrated his own attack. There was an interview with with Kamala Harris and an interviewer asked her about the tweets and she was like, what tweet, which tweet? And then she had to walk back what she said. And, you know, it's just, it's gotten a lot of people in a lot of, of political trouble. I'm a supporter of LGBT rights and, and not because there's any particular reason. It's just like the right thing to do to treat people with the decency and humanity that you would want extended to yourself, but also for very practical reasons, because the people who don't like LGBT folk usually don't care very much for the blacks and the women's either. So I kind of look at it as helping them hold the line keeps people off my ass too. I'm just so blown by the whole thing. 
I see a lot of people asking, like, why would he do this? Like, what would be his motive? The idea that he was being written off Empire has been debunked by by Fox. And they were like, no, he's the third most popular person on the show. Why would we get rid of him? You sound crazy. But I think there's a very obvious reason why he would do it. If you would just if you remember when the story first broke, everyone and their mother was talking about him in positive, supportive ways, was extending their sympathy to him. Like he became like a Kaepernick overnight. So for people who were like, well, why would you do it? That's why. If you look at people who spoke up in support of him after the attack, like it's folks that never spoke up about LGBT rights, like that I recall, you know, maybe they did and I just don't know. But like, I've never seen T.I. or 50 Cent or Steve Harvey have something to say about LGBT issues. And they got involved. It made him a martyr for what happened to him. It made him a hero for surviving the attack. It's it's still a question. I don't want to slam him too hard. I, I want to wait for either the results of a grand jury or for the Chicago police to specifically go on record and say, I think this is a hoax. Like he lied, like he made it up and here's the evidence laid out. I was speaking to one of my friends um, the other day and they were like, you know, why is everyone rushing to believe the Chicago PD? Like this is the same Chicago PD that won't arrest R. Kelly for 20 years. And I was like, touche. Again, the story has some holes in it from the get go. I don't know. If the boy lied, he needs some damn help because something's wrong with you. I was thinking about how to address this when, if it's confirmed that this foolish man made this whole thing up and orchestrated his own attack, probably best way to handle it is to go the full Susan. He's a troubled young man from an excellent family. He's beloved by neighbors and friends. He played varsity sports. He's a team player. He made the honor roll every quarter. If he wasn't an actor, he'd be a veterinarian or a pediatrician because of his nurturing instincts. He's been under great pressure. He suffers from a disease I've never heard of until today. But we should reserve judgment and offer sympathy and prayers and compassion at this difficult time. Isn't that what they always say about white men when they do crazy shit? If the police can find enough compassion, because that's the word of the day, to take Dylan Roof. Isn't that the kid that shot up the black church in Charleston? If they can find enough compassion to like swing that boy by Burger King, folks can find some compassion for Jesse. I mean, he's a fuck up. Like, let's let's not try to pretend it's anything other than what it is. But that's between you and I. But I feel like publicly, we should just point out that, like, y'all don't go and rake over the coals, the people that shoot up high schools and elementary schools. Y'all seem to find compassion for them. So let's find some compassion for this mofo. It seems like he had himself jumped, but he didn't kill anybody. He didn't shoot up anything. Everybody lived. Roast his ass, by all means. He's got that coming. But... Like, let's not go too far overboard with this. Like, he needs some restitution for the man hours that the, the, the Chicago Police Department have put in. Like, if you want to make an example of him, okay. Jail time, stop it. Zimmerman ain't do no jail time for killing that baby in Florida. If R. Kelly can still be free, I'm going to have to advocate for, for Jesse's freedom as well. But his career needs to be put on pause for a minute. I would hope 
that he has the good sense to immediately claim to be addicted to something. But I think painkillers, saying he's addicted to painkillers, that's safe from a PR perspective. He should go to rehab. He should stay quiet for about a year. And then 12 months from now, he should go on Oprah or Gail or, or someone friendly. And he should talk about, you know, his wayward path, how he was consumed with fame and fear and insecurity. And with the power of prayer and God's grace, he's been able to redeem himself. He didn't rape or kill. So, you know, let's let's make sure the reaction against him is fitting for the crime. So this Teddy P documentary, my God, if you don't know me, that's what it's called. It's on Showtime. It's amazing. Teddy P, I would have been a whole hoe for Teddy Pendergrass. I would have been a whole happy hoe. If I had it, Teddy P could have got it. I'm just letting you know. Watching the video of his performances, like I never went down the YouTube train on Teddy P performances. Like, my God, like that was a man. Beautiful and brown and bearded and sexy and body, just tall and and limber. Mm. And that voice, my God, his voice is so amazing. There is no one I can think of who matches Teddy P. Not Usher, not Trey Songs. There is no Teddy P for our generation. That makes me sad. I want to go to a concert and like throw my draws on the stage. If you haven't watched the documentary, you should. Teddy P is equally as known for his voice and his looks and his, his performances as he is for the accident that paralyzed him. The, the story has always been that he was in a car with two women, one of them was a transsexual person. And then the other one was allegedly the wife of a local basketball player. And the reason I don't call her name is because in the documentary, there's footage from the accident. And the wife, who's always been put into this story, is nowhere to be found. His brakes give out. He and the woman in the car, in a Rolls Royce, run into, I think it was a tree. They're trapped in the car for 45 minutes. When the fire trucks come, they have to use the jaws of life to pry them out of the car. There's footage from the actual accident of them pulling this woman and Teddy P out of the car. The woman who was with him was a transgender woman. That wasn't just a rumor. People questioned Teddy P's sexuality for a really long time because they made many assumptions about what this transgender woman must have looked like. The video from this accident, the transgender woman is in. She's also in the documentary talking about what happened the night of the accident. The woman was gorgeous. You would never look at her and think that she had been born with male parts think that's the accurate way to say it if it's not someone correct me I do not mean to offend I'm trying to use the most accurate language that I know to use this woman had already had her her surgery she had a vagina for so long there's been such a cloud of judgment I would say over his name because of who was in the car that evening if you saw sis you'd be like sis is bad gorgeous chick like high cheekbones hair her her whole vibe like she was gorgeous like all Teddy's women like in the documentary several of the women that he dated were pictured 
including a wife, bad, bad chicks. And she was one of the bad chicks. If I was him, I would have dated her. A couple other interesting highlights from the documentary. I did not know. Like, I love Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. Like, my parents play all that old music. I had just always assumed that Harold Melvin was the lead singer of the Blue Notes. I had no idea that Teddy P was one, a member of Harold Melvin in the Blue Notes and used to play the drums at that. And then once he started singing, that it was his voice and not Harold Melvin's on all the hit songs. I feel so duped. I totally recommend this documentary. The footage of Teddy is is life-giving. There's also some crazy stuff that happened in his personal story. There's like a manager who came up dead and Teddy may or may not have had something to do with it. It gets really sketchy. All right, this week in Kamala Harris. This should be, that's a segment. Kamala Harris is officially a segment on my podcast. You know, I wonder if Kamala Harris would come talk to me. You think she would? I have so many questions. I want to know what she thinks about all the crazy stuff that's happening around her, that's being projected onto her. I would love to have a very candid conversation with her. If anyone from her camp is listening, please get in contact with me. I'll reach out to y'all as well. I'll do my tap dancing, but I would really like to interview her. If you've been following the the latest Kamala Harris shenanigans, her blackness is up for debate again this week somehow. This past week, she goes on The Breakfast Club and she's talking about how she cooks her greens with ham. In, in terms of her blackness, she makes a declarative statement like, I'm black and I'm proud to be black. I was born black. I will die black. And I'm like, seriously? Like, y'all have really questioned this woman that she has to, like, declare her blackness. I don't understand why her blackness is in question. Like, her mom is Indian. I don't really look at Kamala Harris and see any parts of Indian in her. Her sister is her campaign manager. And her sister looks Indian. But to look at Kamala Harris, she just like a light-skinned black girl to me. Later in the interview, she's asked whether she ever smoked weed, right? And she says, yeah, she's like, smoked weed and I inhaled. Simultaneously, while she's answering the question about weed, one of the other hosts asked her what she listens to while she was smoking. And she says, Snoop and Tupac. The internet crazies hear this part of the interview And they start accusing her of pandering because they point out that she graduated from Howard in 1986, which HBCU, black school, black woman, somehow not black. Okay, carry on. Okay. She finished law school in 1989, but Snoop Dogg and Tupac's first albums didn't come out until 1993 and 1991, respectively. They start accusing her of pandering and lying and it gets so vicious and becomes such a story that the whole Breakfast Club ends up going on MSNBC to clear everything up. This is what Envy says, quote, we wanted to humanize her, not just talk about politics, talk about what she likes, what she does. He added, I asked what she listens to and she said she listens to Snoop Dogg and Tupac. At the same time, my co-host, Charlemagne, was still talking about marijuana and it was a funny exchange, but she was actually answering me and people took it that she was answering Charlemagne and said she was lying, which isn't true. I just don't understand why the constant references to this woman as pandering, like this questioning of her blackness, it keeps coming up. I wanted to get to the bottom of this. And so because I have the time and I know folks who have the range I reached out to Christina Duyon, who I mentioned at the top of this podcast, to get her expertise. 
She is a diversity fellow and doctoral student in the counseling psychology program at Boston College. She earned her MA in clinical psychology at Columbia University and her bachelor's of science in psychology at the University of Florida. She joined BC's Institute for the Study and Promotion of Race and Culture in the fall of 2014. Her current research interests include exploring the racial and ethnic identity development of Black immigrants, especially those from Africa and the Caribbean. She is also interested in how hair texture influences the perception of one's racial identity. So please, let's welcome Christina to the show. Hi, Christina. I'm like very honored and privileged to have you today. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I want to just talk about a lot of questions that I have about race in general and you being the expert that you are, you would be perfect (laughs) to help me understand some things. My first question is, why is Barack Obama considered Black, but Kamala Harris is always referred to as biracial or not Black enough? That's a heavy question. Isn't it? (laughs) Barack Obama is an exceptional code switcher. And I genuinely mean exceptional. This man goes from singing Marvin Gaye and Al Green to conversing with white people to changing his handshakes from one person to the next, to the next, to the next. This man knows how to engage with his blackness without without hesitation. And he also knows how to appeal to white people in a non-threatening way. So I think that allows him to be black. And I think he also acknowledges that he is Black, because theoretically, you would expect that as he moved on up in power, they would make him less Black. So, For example, if we look at Tiger Woods, when Tiger Woods first started, he was this Black golfer. And then as he became more amazing in his work, he then became a biracial golfer. And once he started winning the highest awards in golf, he became some random version of a hybrid of all of his cultures and ethnicities. Like he stopped being black the more famous he became because he wanted to attribute his success to something else. The same thing that happened with, um, I believe her name is Naomi, the tennis player who beat Serena Williams. She's Haitian and Japanese. And everyone was calling her this amazing Japanese tennis star. But like she's legitimately half Haitian. She's half black. Both of her parents are together and supporting her constantly. And she kept having to remind people she was Black. She also looks Black. Like, she is... She literally does. Melanin filled. (laughs) I mean, the same thing. You look at Tiger Woods, you're like, oh, yeah, he probably has some Asian in him, but dude's also Black, right? Yes, clearly. But, you know, generally you try to take away, not, you know, the figurative you, tries to take away the Blackness in order to explain someone's success by attributing some other whiter culture to them. And Barack Obama managed to not fall victim to that. So one, I'm really impressed by that. And I think it's too, because he insisted on his blackness. And I also want to say, I think because he was with a black woman, like a black woman from Chicago and had black babies and was a black family and really insisted on that. And that was the face he put forth. So I think all that contributes to him being just black and people not just calling him a biracial president. What's happening with Kamala, I'm less sure, because as she's becoming more popular and as she's getting on all of these interviews, I see her trying to affirm her blackness. And I wonder why so many people are taking it away. She was on The Breakfast Club and mentioned that like she makes greens and she's a black woman and she supports marijuana. And I'm like, I wonder why she seems to be feeling the need to, and I feel bad for using this word, but like pandering to black people. It's an odd thing for a black woman to have to do. Hillary Clinton went on The Breakfast Club and said she keeps hot sauce in her bag. And I'm like, okay, I could see why Hillary feels the need to pander to black people, but why does Kamala have to? And I want to think more about that. 
because it's not necessarily fair to her to take away her blackness if she genuinely does identify as a black woman and she also looks like a black woman and is a black woman. Yeah, it's really weird to me that she's being... I shouldn't say it's weird. Actually, I knew it was going to happen because the the second podcast that I did and I said, I think black women are going to support her wholeheartedly. I don't know what black men are going to do because she's married to a white man. And then the third podcast was like, I was wrong about black women because like when she announced <laughs> people went ape shit and were like, no, she's like top cop. People went after her with a viciousness I haven't seen for a politician in a really long time. And I'm like, she hasn't said anything yet. Black people are always going to be criticized tenfold for whatever they do, right? Right. Black women are at the bottom of that. So for her to do anything right, she'd have to do it 10 times better than anyone else. The same way Hillary Clinton was heavily criticized for a lot of her behaviors and her actions, which were no different than all the white men who came before her. If anything, her mistakes were potentially less significant than the white men who came before her. But she was a woman, so the standards were higher. For Barack Obama, the standards were higher because he was a black man. He was not allowed to make mistakes. And when he did, they were blown beyond proportion. Now we have a black woman. She's allowed to make even less mistakes than the white woman before and even less mistakes than the black man before her. She must be perfect. And even then, she will not be good enough. So I'm not surprised that the second she announced, everyone appeared to be attacking her. And I felt like literally she announced at like, pretend, you know, one o'clock by one oh two, it was like she slept her way to the top. And I'm like, how dare they? She has to be perfect for the popular culture to not attack her. She's a black woman. The standards are going to be insane. So if she in any way, shape or form is at all problematic, like in truth, that will be dragged to the forefront constantly. I feel like all they've got on her right now and people are harping on these two things is the she's not black enough. And then her job is a prosecutor. And they're going to hold on to that. Yeah, that's not going anywhere. But I'm like, I just, I like, your dad's Jamaican. You went to Howard. You're an AKA. Like, she's got pretty strong signifiers of blackness, embracing blackness, and not just because she's now running for office. I saw some guy online talking about she pulled her hair back. He was like, oh, she's pulling her hair back to show her edges. And she's listening to Cardi B. And I'm like, one, everyone's listening to Cardi B. But I was yeah. like, her edges are her legit, genuine edges. Like, they're, they're black girl edges. <laughs> like, she got more from her, her Jamaican father's side than she did from her, her Indian mom's side. But it's called pandering because she's biracial, not black enough, married to a white guy. Like, I don't know. Theoretically, she shouldn't have to do any of that. And it seems that she's aware that people are questioning her blackness, which is why she's doing some of these things to legitimize her blackness. But, I mean, if a black, a.k.a. from Howard isn't black enough, then I don't know what she could do. She's a part of the first black sorority. She went to a black institution. She has edges. Her dad is black. Like She just is black, but still the standards are higher for her. She's not black enough. She's not married to a black man. She's X, Y, and Z. I think they're going to find any way to take her down, regardless of how great of a candidate she would be. Denying her blackness is one of the ways to call her into question for the black, for the theoretical black vote. Because if you convince black people that she's not black enough, then you might move their vote elsewhere. What I think is most interesting enough is that the questions of her blackness are coming from other black people. This is all us internal questioning her blackness. I wonder if that's connected to colorism because she's a light-skinned, pretty black girl 
who's an AKA. When you think about colorism, it's ways that we defeat ourselves and one another based on a product of racism. Right? Racism says that Black people are inferior, unintelligent, X, Y, and Z. Colorism says that within those Black people, there are some of them that are better than others. And I wonder if there is a belief that because she is light skin, it would call into question her Blackness. And if Black people as a whole want a Black woman, they want one that is brown skin or dark skin to validate the culture potentially. I'm not sure, but the more we talk about it, the more I'm like, I think colorism might play a role here. Well, I'm pretty sure that it does, because if she was a browner woman, we wouldn't be having a conversation about her Blackness. It, would, it wouldn't be a question mark. It'd be like, oh, she Black. I always believed that if Barack Obama was married to a light-skinned Black woman, yeah, I don't happen. think him being with an actual brown-skinned Black woman from Chicago is what made Black voters be like, yes, this is a man who was for us because he married a woman who looks like us. Yep. Not that Kamala doesn't, but colorism calls her into question in a way that colorism would not call Michelle Obama into question. Nope. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. I thank you for having me. My pleasure. You are a treat. She was great, right? I love Christina. I hope to have her back again soon. So this Gucci boycott. I did an episode last week on blackface because it's everywhere. Gucci ended up in the eye of the storm with some god-awful blackface sweater. Several prominent celebrities called for a boycott. Your boy, Floyd Mayweather, because I can't claim him. I got to pass him off to other people. Goes to the Gucci store gets caught by the TMZ cameras. They're like, hey, Floyd, you know, there's like a boycott going on. You know, you might not want to go into Gucci. Floyd was like, oh, I'm not a follower. I do what the fuck I want to do. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this Gucci. Why are you so adamant about being an asshole? Why? He goes on to say, you know, when everybody else, they say, everybody going to boycott. I say, guess what? This boy going to get on a yacht and live life. You cooning ass Negro. Are you serious right now? I don't like Floyd Mayweather for very many reasons. One that he beats women. And then I guess he realizes that he sounded like a coon. And he goes forth and says, we all know racism still exists, but that's not going to stop my drive. Gucci is part of your drive. Continued. I've got friends from all walks of life. And to me, of course, Black Lives Matter first. Sir, Shouting Black Lives Matter first while you're doing coon shit is like white people who do racist shit and say, I have a black friend. That's what you just did there. Continued. But my thing is this. I'm going to go out there, live life and be happy. Is your only joy in life shopping at the goddamn Gucci store? Like go to Fendi, go to Louis. Like you want to spend like money on European designers? Like you have other options. Why is Gucci so important to you? There's a boycott like they just had blackface on a sweater and you just you just feel real adamant about like I got to shop at Gucci. What does Gucci represent to you that you feel so passionate about it that you will shop in it when they're making fun of and demeaning people who look like you? Like what does Gucci represent to you that is so imperative that you feel like this is the way that you live life? So Floyd gets dragged, obviously, and for a good reason. And then he turns around and posts this very eloquent multi-part response on Instagram that everyone and their mother knows he didn't write, which is mostly an eloquent way to shade T.I. and justify him shopping at Gucci. 
And he's talking about how rappers make destructive lyrics that don't benefit the community. And I'm just like, you're deflecting. Because really, really, we can address both of these issues. We can boycott Gucci. We can say, you know what? We're not going to, to buy clothes from a designer that disrespects and demeans the image of black people. And we can also be like, we need to clean up the, the content of the lyrics and music. I'm unclear why we need to pick one. Like T.I. making questionable lyrics doesn't make him wrong about calling for a boycott of Gucci. And then Floyd brings Dapper Dan into this because he's a designer for Gucci. And Floyd's like, oh, I've been supporting Dapper Dan all along, even before he got the new gig, like after everyone abandoned him, when the brands went after him. Does this make supporting Gucci okay? Because Dapper Dan is there? How, Sway? How? And poor Dapper Dan, he's like the only black person that anybody knows at Gucci and he's been catching hell like he designed the damn sweater. He puts out a statement on Instagram. I'm a black man before I'm a brand. He's telling people he's he's called the head of Gucci. They're coming to Harlem to have a sit down with him and a whole bunch of black fashion folks to talk about how to fix Gucci's racism. And that meeting actually did happen. They've got this multi-part plan to address Gucci's internal racism. They're going to hire a global director of diversity and inclusion who's going to be based out of New York. There's going to be design scholarships. There's going to be new designers, I'm assuming, of color headed to the Rome office. They're going to have uh, bias training and there's going to be some sort of global exchange program. There were some other things, but those were, were the highlights. It's something, you know, if it's executed right and it allows folks in fashion to achieve their dreams and operate at the top level. I mean, I guess I just. eh, It don't really sound like nothing. Like it sounds like some bullet points to to pacify people after you made like in like a gross error. And it's better, like I said, than nothing. But do I feel like it's enough? No. Who who got fired for this shit? Somebody designed it and someone approved it and someone was like, okay, we're going to manufacture it. Like they went through very, very many steps of people who approved all these processes for this very racist item of clothing to make it to show. There's a lot that went wrong there. And I just wonder who's held accountable. Like the head of Brazilian Vogue had her 50th birthday party and decided she wanted to do like a, a colonial slave theme. She got fired. Like, so who is being fired at Gucci? Like, where's the direct accountability for this problem? Because what it sounds like to me, other than the bias training, is you're bringing in a bunch of people of color to go work with a bunch of people in an inherently racist office place. It sounds like a great opportunity on paper, but it actually sounds like you're bringing in people of color who are just going to really suffer and suck being around like a bunch of racists all day. Maybe I'm just skeptical about diversity training because I feel like it teaches people to say all the right things. But these attitudes about race that have been ingrained in you, usually since you were a kid and they were ingrained in you by your parents. I don't know that like a half a day workshop at your job changes that. I don't know. The whole thing just doesn't really sit well with me. Like I have some Gucci. I have a couple bags. I have my eye on one in particular that I've wanted for like a really long time. I'll say this. After the Starbucks incident in Philly, I didn't go to Starbucks for like a year. Even though Starbucks, you know, they addressed the issue. They shut down all the stores for the day. Like, you know, they had diversity training and all that. But just the idea of like these two black guys just couldn't sit and wait for a friend in Starbucks. It strikes me as an, as, 
an error of the institution, not just of the store manager. The only reason you do something like that is because you don't think it's crazy or you don't think you'll be held accountable for the craziness. So it doesn't even matter. So I think I'm just going to take the same approach to Gucci. Not that I was buying Gucci by the goo gobs anyway, but I don't have a, a compelling reason to be like, ooh, it's, it's Gucci. It's new. I must have it. it. It doesn't give me life the way it apparently does for, for Floyd Mayweather. So I'm going to be cool on Gucci for a minute. I'm glad they addressed the issue. I'm glad they had this sit down. I'm glad the fashion people feel heard. They seem to feel pacified. Is that the right word? By by the changes that Gucci is committed to making. I don't know. Fashion's a really racist industry in general. There was a story last year. I can't remember what magazine it was in, but it was a profile of several black folk who work in fashion and what it was like to be black in fashion. And basically it was like story after story of like being ignored, being shitted on and not having the same access as people who work at lesser publications and don't have the same titles, reach, abilities that black folk do. I mean, I guess the hopes aren't really that high in fashion. So, you know, doing anything seems like something. So that's that. So Monique and Steve Harvey. Before that interview aired, there was a buzz about it. And the buzz was that Monique had threatened to punch Steve Harvey in the face, which made her sound belligerent and crazy and fulfilled the current narrative about her, which is that she's unhinged and difficult to work with. She threatened to punch him, but it was it was like a joke that fell flat. It wasn't at all what it was hyped up to be. Like, they really did her a disservice in, in being like, oh, she said she was going to punch him. Like, no, it wasn't that at all. I watched part one of this conversation between Monique and Steve. Monique has a very negative reputation in Hollywood. And Steve wants to talk to her about her role in the negativity. Monique mostly comes across as sane. There were a couple things she she said or admitted to doing, which I was like, nah, sis, like you, you should have dialed it back. But she feels very wronged. And so she's wrong and strong in return. So the short version with Monique is that she has been blackballed in the industry. And she says it's because she said no to powerful people. And if I remember the details of this correctly, after she shot Precious, she was asked, expected to do international press to promote the movie, and she refused because she wasn't getting a check. It's standard in the industry. Like you, you participate in a film project. If you're, if you're star, if you have a starring role, or if you're a starring role, or you're a big name in the production, you're expected to do the press rounds. I don't think people realize that you don't get paid for that depending on how labor intensive like the press tour is, it's taking you away from your home and your family. It may keep you away from doing other projects because you're promoting something as opposed to pursuing something, reading scripts, working on another project. So essentially you're working, but you're not getting paid. And that's frustrating. And it's standard in the industry. Like everyone just sort of goes along with it, but it's not really right to do. Essentially, you're asking people to work for free. 
couple years ago, Kevin Hart wouldn't, he has this massive social media following and he wanted to be paid for additional tweets to promote the film. And they were like, no, you're a part of the film. Like this is all part of it. And he was like, no, when people want to, when brands want to access my audience, they pay me to do so. You want to access my audience. You want me to activate them to go to the theater, pay me. And they're like, you're in the film. You should do it. And he was like, I don't get a cut of that. Like he was like, you make money off of me doing that. I already got paid for doing this. Like you want me to utilize something that I've built to increase your profits without paying me. Kevin Hart wasn't blackballed for doing that. He got called a whore for it, but they also ran him a $2 million check for two tweets to promote the films. Monique does something similar over much more time invested than a tweet, and she gets blackballed. She gets labeled difficult, and she's rightfully pissed about that. She adds on the show, she says, there were people like Oprah, Lee Daniels, Tyler Perry, who were all like either directors or producers on Precious. She says they privately supported her, and then they turned around and publicly disparaged her. I understand where Monique is coming from here. Steve goes on to talk about Monique's issues with Netflix and how she asked folks to to boycott Netflix. And he was like, yo, like you were you were bringing some rich people problems to the public. I want to say she was offered like like half a million and she wanted like a few million because that's what other people who were on her level were getting. And maybe because I'm a black woman, but I felt her. I felt that that issue wasn't just about Netflix. I think it was about less qualified people, less qualified white people out earning you and how that's not okay. Like that's not just something that happens in entertainment either because on average, black women are paid 21% less than white women. So as a black woman who wants her money, who wants to be paid what she's worth, she wants to be she wants to be paid on par with what her accomplishments and her reach are. And I was like, I don't think that that's unreasonable. And I don't understand how Steve didn't see that. The crux of this interview boils down to Steve and Monique discussing how to handle their problems in the industry. Steve says essentially that you can't tell the truth and that you can't be yourself because they're black folk in Hollywood and this isn't a black game. It's a money game. It's true. Steve also says very crassly, the best thing you can do for poor people is not be one of them. In general, I like Steve. I don't always like his advice about relationships because I think that it centers men and it tells women how to put themselves and their wants, their needs, their desires second to a man. But I respect his hustles. And I know he had a point that you can't help poor people if you're also poor. But the way it came out, he sounded like a complete douche. Monique claps back that folks in the industry have lost their integrity worrying about money. And Steve argues essentially that integrity isn't everything. And he talks about how his family counts on him. He got in so much shit for that comment. Basically, people called him a fuckboy because of it. He said to People Magazine, quote, I have lived my life as a man of integrity. So when I was referring to integrity in that interview, I was talking about the method in which things were done. And that is all it was. I think people expect me to blast him. I'm not going to. Not for that. Not for the integrity part. The poor people think I said what I just said. There's a reason that people like Colin Kaepernick and Rosa Parks and Dave Chappelle and Nelson Mandela and Muhammad Ali and Anita Hill and a bunch of other women whose names are not coming to mind right now. There's a reason that they're also revered. Partially is because they had integrity and they did the thing that most people won't do. Most people are not going to put their job on the line. Most people are not going to put their freedom 
on the line, which is why when you see people like the people I just listed, they're elevated in our eyes because they do something that's very difficult for most people to do that most people think I'd like to do. But when push comes to shove, you make sure your lights stay on and your bills are paid. Colin Kaepernick has been very lucky that the NFL settled with him for an undisclosed amount that's rumored to be between 60 and 80 million. But a lot of folks thought he would never see that money. And I'm sure there were many days he didn't think he'd see that money, despite the lawyer bills that he was racking up. He wants to play football. He's probably never going to play in the NFL again. He took a knee for a purpose. Most people would not be willing to do that. Most people would not be willing to give up their their dream and their livelihood on principle. So when you see people that do it, it's very admirable. I think Steve was just being really honest. Like he, he cleaned it up because he got dragged for it so bad. But most people don't live lives based on integrity. It's okay that people don't value the same things. Like it's okay that Monique values her integrity over everything else. I'm sure she would like to, to do more work. I'm sure she would like to have higher profile gigs. Her version of integrity has cost her that. I'm obsessed with Oprah's Super Soul Conversations podcast. There is an interview with Steve and she asked him, she's like, you know, you work so hard. You've got all these jobs. Like, what are you doing this for? And he was like, I want my great grandchildren to remember my name. When I am when I am long and gone, like I want a legacy that lasts for generations. Are there things that he would have to compromise his integrity for in order to make sure that his that he keeps achieving his dreams, that he keeps increasing his finances so that his family is set for generations? He values that. He would rather have that than absolute integrity in place. And I don't fault him because, again, most people do not operate with 100 percent integrity and most people are not willing to compromise everything just on GP. I like to say that I am. There are things that I've had great integrity about, but there's also things that I've had no integrity about. And admittedly, it has come to bite me in the ass every time. So I try very hard to live a life of integrity, but sometimes I need to check. We only hear the stories of people that it worked out for when they had integrity and then they also got the thing that they wanted on the back end. But there's a lot of folks who did the thing with integrity who didn't get a $60 million payday like Dave Chappelle. Remember he walked away from the Chappelle show? People thought he was crazy and he was like, I can't do this because I feel like I'm writing jokes and people are laughing at me, not with me. And that's not what I want to do. And people called him crazy. He was living with integrity. He got what he walked away from that first go round. He got it back and then some. Good for him. But if Dave Chappelle never came back around, people would still be saying how crazy he was to walk away from that 50 million and then run off to Africa. Monique's making it work for her. Like if she sleeps well at night based off integrity, God bless her. You can't eat integrity. I'm sorry. I'm not saying don't have integrity. I'm just saying that there are sometimes other things that have to factor into your decisions other than just GP. Last thing, there's a part of this discussion that's heavily circulated. It's the part one where Steve and Monique are arguing like pretty heavy and trying to come to a resolution. There's a part two to that video that has not been as widely circulated. And I think it's really important to watch. And it may be why I have so much sympathy for Steve in this situation. He pours in to Monique and he reminds her 
publicly important. He reminds her of her worth and her value and her talent. And he does it in a very Oprah-like way. He offer, he affirms her. He apologizes to her for his role because Monique was like, you know what, you could have called me. You were one of the people that that said like, you know, I got you. You're my brother. I got you. And then you got on radio and then you dissed me like everybody else. And he was like, I should have taken more time to speak with you. I should have made more time to talk to you. And I should have come to you before I did that. I am taking accountability is a big thing for me. We can build a whole lot together and I can forgive you much faster if you're accountable for your shit. And then Steve, knowing that he has this massive platform, knowing that he has some power in the industry, he offers to do a sit down with Monique and the people that she has beef with. He says, they owe you an apology. You also owe them an apology. I will try to get y'all together so that y'all can hash this out and we can get you back on track and get you working and share your gifts with the world again. I thought that was really dope of him to do for her. So despite his integrity conversation and how he's been jagged for it, he actually went out on a limb for her and he tried to make things right. It was some real grown man shit. And you could see by the end of the conversation that Monique felt heard. I even got a little teary about it. That is our conversation this week. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. I know we had a lot to talk about. We did five topics instead of four, but had to make up for lost times and cover all the bases. Thank you for sticking with me and tuning in. If you need ratchet and respectable shenanigans and hijinks during the week you can follow me on social media twitter facebook and instagram at demetria l lucas you can also go to my blog demetria l so that's everything and i'll talk to you next week bye